Hello and welcome to the Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Mary Jane Laurie and this is the first in our series of podcasts on forward-thinking farmers. Today I'm speaking to husband and wife team Bill and Helen Smith from the Byers Farm Spay Bay in Morrisshire. So hello Helen and Bill. Hi there. Hi. Can you start by introducing yourselves a little bit? Yeah. Um, I'm Helen. I married Bill in 2011. And we have two children, Marshall and Louisa, aged seven and five. Uh, I trained as a rural chartered surveyor in Aberdeen and I practiced as a land agent before having family and then came home um, to raise them. And then we set up our diversified enterprise on the farm after Louisa was born five years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's time's flown anyway. Uh, The farm here is a family farm. It's myself and Helen and my brother Alan and his wife and my parents, John and Lorna, who run the farm. Uh, we're a traditional mixed northeast farm, you would say, uh, growing malting barley, uh, suckler, suckler cows, uh, sheep, and we finish or rear uh, pigs for the for the Carroll Food Group. And now we're kind of dipping our toe into the, the tourism market um, via the diversification that Helen mentioned. So, yeah, plenty going on anyway. Yeah, so we'll come to the diversification stuff later on. So how long have, have your family been, been farming in, in Spay Bay then, Bill? Well, we, we moved to Byers Farm here, Ojings, two years ago. Um, but we've been farming up in the northeast of Scotland since so 1982. Just like a lot of other farms and other uh, families, uh, the size of the farm has steadily grown over the years. And just to get to the stage where we are now, but um, let's say Byers Farm here, it's a Crown Estate farm. We're on the Falkerbers Estate. Um, it's a it's a 400 acre, pretty much um, arable farm, um, and we are pretty much dead flat at about 45 to to 50 feet above sea level. So we're right down at the mouth of the River Spey, just beside Falkerbers here. So it's a it's a really nice place to be anyway. So you mentioned that you just moved to the buyers a couple of years ago. Before that, were you have you got several farms that the family managed together, or are you all sort of doing separate farms now? How does it work? Well, uh, the way we work is we're one big, uh, we're one family, one big family, um, and we run uh, four different farms within our eight to ten mile radius. Um, so they're all they're all quite cent- they're all quite close together, really, just by the way the the roads work, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So the way it kind of works is, I suppose my dad oversees everything with his knowledge and experience. My brother, Alan, looks after the livestock, the cattle and the sheep. And myself, I kind of deal with the, the crops, which is predominantly the malting barley and, and the pig side of things. So, yep, ice bit. So there's basically a difference between livestock and crops, which allows us the opportunity to drill down into you know our own own areas of expertise so within yeah the I mean, that works that works well when there's a few family members isn't it if you all have your, your own bit that you can take ownership over it does it does it does work really well because you know like a lot of people say you're better to specialize and you know in one thing and i understand what they mean by that now because to do you know everything you know 100 percent would just take an unreal amount of effort and time so is that something you always want to do? Did you always want to be a farmer or is it something that's just sort of you felt you were born into or came into uh, later on? Or I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a funny one, that, isn't it? I think as you're kind of growing up, you always have ideas and 
you know, your usual story, you get you always get encouraged by the, the old auntie that, oh, you don't want to be a farmer, going, you know, you want to be <laughs> something else. And, you know, I always remember those, you know, tea, talks around the tea table and that kind of thing. And But then it's just something you grow into, isn't it? So I went off to agri-college at Cravestown, uh, Aberdeen. Uh, yep. spent, I went for two years to do an HND and liked it so much I stayed for four and came out with honours degree. So, yeah, it was just kind of, I think it's something that's in the blood, really, isn't it? Maybe it sounds a lot yeah. like corny kind of thing, like, but. Um, <laughs> no, that's true for a lot of family farms, though, isn't it? It's something, you know, if you're brought up with it, it just becomes your way of life and you become passionate about it because it's so absorbing. It's not like any other career, I don't think. Uh, yeah, no, it is. And we're quite lucky here because my parents, have, you know, they would never stop us doing anything business wise on the farm kind of thing. You know, they're very, very forward forward looking and that kind of thing so it's you know if we can come up with a a harebrained idea you know or just try something different it's like yeah try and see nothing ventured nothing gained kind of scenario so yeah so it worked pretty well yeah and Helen you're from a farming family as well aren't you yeah I'm farming family too so um I suppose the kind of stereotypical gender thing comes into it that I was always encouraged in farming and I was always very involved with the farm growing up but you were never actively encouraged to come home to the farm and be a farmer. Um, yeah. So probably that's where I found my kind of niche in land management. And I went off and did rural land and business management at Aberdeen. And then yeah. was a, um, worked sorry, as a land agent for, oh, I don't know, years before I had family and came home. Yeah. And, and the rural surveying is so related to, to uh, modern yeah, farming absolutely. now, isn't it? It just gives you that sort of business mind and um, it makes you aware of all the issues that are going on around, especially with tenant farms as well, particularly. Yeah, no, it gives you a good grounding um, to come home. So, so your brother deals with the, the cattle side of things then, Bill. So can you tell us a little bit more about your arable side? You say it's pr- predominantly spring barley, but do you have you must have break crops and things within that, do you? The breakdown of that is pretty much grass and spring barley. Um, okay. Uh, we don't have three crops this year just because of the three crop rule was was yeah, cool. thank goodness yeah that's like a point kind of thing. so i'd be interested yeah. to see if that's now a distant memory but we'll we'll wait and see um i think that might be too much to hope yeah so maybe maybe you should say the breakdown of the farm is we're in around 200 suckler cows uh we have about 300 350 sheep um we are about twenty four thousand pigs for the cattle food group that's from seven kilos to 30 kilos Right. Um, and we, the cropping side of things is, well, depending on rotation, I'd say average about 850 acres of malting barley. Um, okay, so that's a big workload in your sp- in the spring for you then. It, it, it is, it is. We're, we're a better spring grow- cropping area than a winter cropping area, especially in our yeah. type of ground. Um, mm-hmm. The malting barley works very well because we're, we're in space side, we're in the heart of the, the whiskey industry, kind of thing. Yeah. So, Within our doorstep, we have at least uh, three, probably four maltings within half an hour, half an hour's drive kind of thing. So, it, so it works. It works really well. And we're an early, an early corner of Scotland. So we'll start sowing early March, mid March, and mm-hmm. we'll be looking for the combines to be rolling anywhere from the, oh, I think the middle of August onwards. I think the earliest I can yeah. ever remember combining spring barley was the, the 5th of August one year. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think that was maybe a dry year kind of thing. So <laughs> we won't remember too much about that one. But, uh, but yeah, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a 
it's a busy spell in the, in the spring, um, but we do take in extra labour, extra tractor drivers in the springtime. Right, okay. Just to get it. So okay. myself, I mean myself and another tractor driver will pretty much deal with the, the spring sowing kind of thing. But the plan is to have all the ploughing done before we before we start sowing. So it's just a... And is it all traditionally ploughed or do you do some mintil? Uh, no, we're all, we're all traditionally ploughed. Um, yeah. a, few, a few years back, we bought a Cat Challenger a crawler tractor and moved to on-land ploughing instead of ploughing in the furrow. Um, so that gave us a bit more... Obviously, it's a bigger machine, it's a bigger plough, so that gives us a bit more efficiency, a little bit more output, yeah. just so yeah. we can get through what we need to get through when we have to. So we, yeah. can't, we can't start ploughing until later because we've got mulch crops in the ground. So Okay. So is that part of a scheme or is that just something that you do for maintaining uh, no, soil it's quality? Just, uh, it's, it's no scheme. It's just it's, uh, I just feel it's the right thing to do. It's green manure. It's green manure crops, just a mixture of fodder radish and uh, white mustard, which is sown after the, the spring barley has been harvested just in August stroke September. Mm-hmm. Um, so that goes in in September, and with no fertilizer, it's just direct drilled into the stubbles with a, a Vadastar drill, and that is just left to to grow in its own accord, kind of thing. So the the idea of that is basically just to produce organic matter for ploughing back into the soil. So we're basically pulling carbon into the soil to feed the worms in the soil biota, and the theory being, in a normal year, hopefully gives us better crops the uh, the following cycle anyway. If you're sowing your mulch crops in August, there's been a lot of research done that you know they don't work as well in Scotland as they do down south because obviously they can sow them a lot quicker, especially you know sowing after spring yeah. barley. It's later. Do you find that they still grow well enough to give you a good cover by the winter? Um, yes, we do. In a normal year, we'll get a uh, very good cover. I think the mulch crops is something you've got to look at it over an average or a number of years. If you tried it one year, it'd be a hit or a miss. So I would say yeah. to stick at it for three, maybe four years uh, and see what happens. Some years you'll get plants that are five, six inches off the ground. And mm-hmm. then the next year, if it's an earlier harvest, you know, you'll be ploughing in plants, mustard plants that are just shy of a metre high kind of thing. Oh, wow. So, okay. So really you know, variable. Yeah. It really is variable. And it really just does depend on the, the harvest date. But the, our best mulch crop to date was after the driest harvest or driest year we've ever had, which was oh, a couple of years ago, the first year we moved to Byers Farm. Um, and the theory behind it, why the mulch was so good, because it was such a dry summer growing period that the fertiliser wasn't used properly by the spring uh, barley crop. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's really in. valuable then that you were absorbing that into something that was then being yes, so instead of back into the soil. Out and then you know, just wasted, the, the mulch basically sucked it all up. It grew like triffids. It was like a rainforest. And it was fantastic. We ploughed it in, and that's just an unreal amount of organic matter. um, Yeah. Just for the worms and everything. So, no, so it's a, I wouldn't say it's a hit or a miss, but you've got to stick at it. And do you do that to the whole farm, or do you leave some as stubble? No, we'll we'll do it to the whole farm. Um, Okay. What's, well, maybe sow down 150 acres of stubble turnips. We're feeding the suckler cows and the sheep through the wintertime, and everything else. Uh, if depending on sowing date, will be sown into mulch. And, but the okay. thing is, I think it's safe to say we'll quite happily sow the mulch up until the end of September. And right. The stuff it's the crop is the mulch is sown end of September. That will generally be the the last fields ploughed in kind of February March. So 
if it's, a, if it's a mild winter, it certainly does keep growing, and it's it's always it's worth it. I, st- I still think it's worth it because it's as much the root mass under the ground, so it's it's not always what you see in the surface that's doing the good thing kind of thing. No, absolutely. And if you're if you're not sowing any other crops at that time of year, you've not got time pressure, you know, to be. Yeah, uh, you know, getting wheat in or something, so um, it frees you up, frees you up to be focusing on that. No, no that's it works, great. It works very well. It gets very busy at harvest time. Uh, it is another job to do, but sometimes it's the more effort you put in, the more you get out. Kind of scenario. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll stick at and, it and your and your cattle and things are they bedded on straw? So the muck will be going back on as well, presumably. Yes, that's yes. The straw is all baled, um, and that all goes in through the either for feeding to cattle or for the bedding for the cattle and the pigs. So all the yeah. all the straw come the, the middle of summer will be, or come the following harvest, will be all gone and used up and we'll be counting the days till the combine starts rolling just to get some bedding. <laughs> um, yeah. with, the, with the pigs, they're inside on straw bedded courts. So we're just, we're using straw all year round, turning straw into organic matter again, because we don't sell it yeah. on the farm. We kind of feel of selling straw is about, kind of like robbing the place kind of thing. Um, yeah, well, you're selling your, your organic matter off the farm, aren't you? Yes, um, that's it, exactly. So, so no, we try to put it all back in again if we can. So it's quite a traditional mixed system as in you're using what you've got, but the, the mulch crops are relatively sort of new ideas, isn't it, as well, of, of maintaining more, more so organic matter? No, you're, you're right. We've been at the mulch for about five years now. And I remember the first year we tried it, um, I wanted a demonstrator of a Vadastrad drill and it was really late on in the season and the only thing I could think about sowing was mustard. So I got a bag of mustard for a 20-acre field just outside Elgin and mm-hmm. we, we put that in and it got to the middle of winter time and started plowing it in and I think I remember going into one of the local tractor garages and someone asked me, what what were you plowing in there, Bill? Did, did the crop <laughs> not work? I was like, no, no, it's fine. It was mustard. We grew it to plow it in and it was a bit of, you Grew it to plough it in. Okay, right. <laughs> Neighbours always like to comment on what you're doing, don't they? Yeah, that was <laughs> something a, a bit yeah. normal. They kind of give you that funny look of like, I'm just going to move on from this funny guy, kind of thing. But, but They'll all be doing it now, though. Well, they are. Since then, yeah, since then, a lot of people, everyone's doing it. Not everyone, but a lot of people are doing it. But I think I should say that some of the mulch we do use is for the, the greening aspect. You know, mm-hmm. instead of fallow ground or your beetle banks, so we grow a heap of the, an acreage just to take, you know, to cover that box. But then the rest of the farm is just before, because it's the right thing to do. Uh, like yeah. two, two years ago, we managed to get the whole farm green going into the winter time, which basically meant everything was either sown in every stubble field was sown in either stubble turnips or or mulch crop. So that was a that that was a sense of achievement. We can ask, we yeah. don't manage that every year, but that year was we did so. Um. So with all the mulch crops, have you found that you've been able to adjust your fertilizer and save on fertilizer the following year? Yeah, we're, we're cutting we're cutting back slightly, kind of thing. I don't think we're not well. Of course, with the malting barley, it's the nitrogen that's the the crucial factor. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not finding a lot of like, mulch isn't causing us a nitrogen problem. Um, it's just I think it's more improving the soil 
and the biota in the soil. Yeah. And okay. I, I so really, soil structure rather than nutrient saving, you think? Yes. Yeah. I really don't want to go off on a boring tangent about microbes and fungi and that kind of thing. But I think it's... Uh, <laughs> it's Some people I, love I, that, chat, Bill. <laughs> well, I think if you start to look into it, if you looked at my Facebook account, I mean, that's, that's all it is, just like boring soil stuff kind of thing. But when you start to look into why the mulch is good, you start to realise that you're just getting the soil back to life again. You're feeding the fungi, yeah. and you're getting the soil food web going. And there's some interesting articles out there that explain that once you get your fungi going, you can actually use, the soil will use your nitrogens more efficiently. So mm-hmm. I like to think that because we are getting the soil back to life, that because of that, we're using the fertilizer that we do put on more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah, which is yeah. valuable, isn't it? Yeah. And did you find a difference between, you've got, did you say three tenancies? Do you yeah. find a difference between the different farms and the way that they've been managed by previous tenants in um, soil structure, or is it more to do with the soil types that you've got? I, I think they're different, they're different soil types. Uh, one farm where my brother stays is uh, light sand, blow, blow mm-hmm. away kind of sand. Uh, we get big gales mm-hmm. in the springtime and we could quite easily lose a five foot fence in one day. Um, with blown oh earth. Um, other far, one of the other farms is heavier. It's more clay loam. It's a bit heavier. But then that benefits from the mulch because it helps to open up the soil. It gives us uh, some structure and it's a lot easier to break down because instead of having a big clod with nothing in it, now we have a clod with thousands of little root hairs, basically little fracture points. So now because of these fracture points, when you cultivate the ground, it breaks down a lot easier. What we do there in the springtime to stop the sand blowing is we sow, we sow the barley, then we spread the dung on top of the sown fields. So instead, okay. of, instead of plowing the dung into the ground, we put the dung uh-huh. on top of the stone, sown ground and then, uh-huh. roll, then go over the rollers. So we roll the dung into the ground. Um, Just to sort of protect that top layer a bit. It does. It breaks the wind and it gives the... The ground something to hold on to and it and it does it does stop the sand blowing so we've been doing that yeah. for a good number of years now which in a way is quite good because you're plowing in the mulch and then you're putting the dung on top so you've got mulch in the bottom of the the plowfer and then mm-hmm. for the roots to go down to then you've got the dung in the top for the worms and the bugs in the top layer to have something to work on through the the growing season and i think it's yeah. generally about what we're trying to do is just reduce the brown period for as short yeah. as possible. Uh, mm-hmm. The farm is green as long as possible, then have it brown for as little as time as we possibly can. I mean, we've been seeing a lot more extremes of weather. I mean, this the last two months it has, I don't know about you guys up north, I'm in the Lothians here and we've just had no rain. Until today, we've had yes. no rain since March. So yeah, very dry conditions. Yeah, previous years it's been so wet. So we're seeing a lot more extremes, aren't we, of like really yeah. wet where you'll get loads of runoff um, yeah. to really dry where the soil's blowing away as you're cultivating. Well, so yeah. all the things you're doing are trying to well, mitigate against those extremes, really, isn't it? Yes, the more mulch, the more dung, and the more things we can get into the soil to increase organic matter. When you, Like you say, when you get some really dry periods, it has been incredibly hot and dry up in this corner. Yeah. Um, your yeah. crops and your grass, just they just hang in that little bit longer. And, yeah. and, and we did see that two years ago in a really dry period. Some of our grade four sand, um, really light ground, actually yielded better than some of our um, grade three two ground, three one okay. three two ground that we've just taken on. 
So it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you look after the soil, it'll look after you kind of scenario. It's a good motto to live yeah, by. Yeah, yeah. I, I think <laughs> I, like, yeah, I like to put it as we're, I think all we're doing now is just reinventing what granddad's generation was doing and then just well, giving, it. giving it funky names. If granddad was still alive, <laughs> like, yeah, we were doing that back in the 40s and we called it a rotation or we called yeah. it a yeah. break crop. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you recently took on the new tenancy at the Byers Farm. How did that come about? Because it's a bit of an interesting story about how you guys got the tenancy, isn't it? We were tenants on the Crown Estate um, just along the road. And Byers Farm is one of those farms that you always look at and dream of. Someday I could maybe live there um, and farm there. And when it came up, we just um, gave it our all to put the tender in. It went on the open market. The Crown Estate let it on the open market. Um, and we had to put the tender in we were already doing a kind of small farm diversification um, at our previous farm and we were running children's groups and taking them onto the farm to show them about farming and teach them about this is what we do every week on the farm so Mm -hmm. part of our tender um, for the buyer's farm was to expand on that farm diversification and relocate it down to here and build a bigger premises and kind of move for that, along with a lot of the mulch crop and the kind of integrating the, into a bigger farming business. Um, and that's what the Crown Estate went for. So yeah. we were very lucky to so get So do you think it. it was the combination of the novel, I mean, mulch crop isn't novel, but perhaps in your area is, the, the no, novel mulch crop being a bit different for the arable side and having the diversification which is really different to what other people are doing i think what i think it's our whole whole family system or our whole family ethos uh just i think gelled well with the crown estate i should probably Mm -hmm. say that you know we were already tenants on the crown estate Um, okay we previously stayed at a farm called lower rock and reef and we had a farm called upper rock and reef as well so we gave up the Upper Rock and Reef Farm, which was 200 acres, uh, to you know, then moved down to Byers, which is 400 acres. So okay. we we gave up a farm to to move to a you know a bigger farm kind of thing, and yeah. uh, and then yeah. the, the estate relayed the other the farm we gave up. So I think it was uh, I think it was our whole farm farming ethos. Yes, we had a, a diversified enterprise that kind of helps reduce the risk of farming. You know, income from farming. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just sustainable. I think that's the word. What we're trying to do here is just sustainable. You know, where I think you could coin the phrase, if it's not popular, it's going to be in years to come, called regenerative farming. Yes, kind of another thing. one of these trendy, trendy terms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Grandad's just turning in his grave there. Kind of <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so I think it's, well, we're just sustainable and just, just a good farming system and I think that's kind of yeah. you know what they like there's nothing too high risk they already knew who we were and liked liked the way we were farming kind of thing and yeah just the whole fab family ethos was a big a big plus kind of thing um, and, and Helen your background in rural surveying do you think that helped knowing a little bit about the sort of application process and what they might be looking for I think yeah I think it probably um does put you at a slight advantage and that you've sat on the other side of the desk before. So yeah. you can kind of, you know what people are expecting. Yeah. yeah. So have you got any tips for uh, someone that's looking to apply for a new tenancy? Pretty much just a case of just, if, if, if you really 
want it. And I know there are a lot of people will be out there who are like, well, I really did want that one, but I didn't get it. But I think if, it, if it's if it's what you live and breathe and, you, you know, you can't go to sleep because you're thinking about it at night and you're going over it in your head all the time, you know, I think you've just got to really want it. You've got to stick at it and just... No, you don't always have to find different things to do. I think if someone's looking for a tenant and they want a good farming tenant, well, I think just just be that good farming tenant. You don't need to go into I don't know horse, you know horse livery. You don't need to be don't be different for the sake of being different. I think I think mm-hmm. that's my point. Kind yeah, of thing. do what's true to you. What, true to you. I mean, I was really passionate about teaching children and people about farming, and yeah. the public know about what farmers really are because there's so many misconceptions out there so what I was doing at Auchin Reef I was passionate about and I think that probably came through in the tender um, yeah because it is it's a gen as Bill said it was a genuine passion you know Bill's genuinely passionate about farming I'm genuinely passionate about um, the agritourism side of it and that probably shines through so when they came for the interview they could see that um, yeah. Whereas if you're writing something in a tender because you think it's what they want to hear, if you get to interview stage, they'll see through that. So you've got just stay true to yourself, I think, would be my, my yeah. advice. I think if you've got that burning desire, I think you'll you know, you'll get you'll get there eventually. And it's just if you don't get the first one, you might get the second one, but don't don't be afraid to fail, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you, if you fail you learn. You know, failure isn't a problem. We we're, we're not scared to fail here. Um, you're always going to learn. You're always going to learn something, and just like someone once said, just feel forward and and just keep moving. Kind yeah, of I think so. well, that's you know, you're better to have tried and failed because if you haven't tried, you've failed already. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, the other thing I would say is not everything is right for you. So I think with a lot of farmers, any farm that comes up, they feel the need to tender for or apply for, but um, you've got to go for the one that's right for you as opposed to go for everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's other farms in the area that have come up that we haven't applied for because they haven't fitted our farming model. So go for what's right, um, not for everything. Well, that's it. You've still got to have a quality of life at the end of it all. You know, you don't want to get it at all costs, do you? Yeah, well, you don't want to be a busy fool, if you know what I mean. So, <laughs> um... Yeah. So, so Helen, you mentioned your diversification there. So, I mean, you used to call it fun farm. Is that what you still call it? And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, it started off about five years ago and people came to our house to visit, you know, with kids because we had young kids. And, you know, you would take them out to feed the pet lambs and you would walk around the sheds and see the cows and you would play in pedal tractors. And Someone said to me, oh, Helen, I feel like I've been out at an adventure park for a day. You should charge for this. And all of a sudden, like, a penny dropped. I think <laughs> when you're born and bred on a farm, you just take your surroundings for granted. And, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of life I really did take for granted. Um, and when I had children, my friendship group changed out with the farming circles and kind of became more, you know, orientated around your children as it does. And yeah. they, weren't, they weren't from farming circles and they hadn't experienced that kind of freedom of a farm and had no idea, um, you know, that cows went into a shed and that, you know, yeah, they just thought they lived out in the grass all the time. Or, yeah. you know, Funny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, just the basic stuff that you take for granted as a farmer, the yeah. public didn't know. So I thought, gosh, I, could, I probably could do something. So at the time we had what would have been known as our garage. 
and garden but to Mm -hmm. to the town person that became a barn and a paddock and um, we kind of, I think you should maybe say it, it wasn't a, a double garage. No, it wasn't a modern double garage. It was, it was an old no. farm. <laughs> it would have been the old, it was the old fire back in the day, you know, the old clay and walls building kind of thing. So, so. Um, yeah, old, it was quite rustic and nice looking. Very rustic. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So that rustic um, garage of ours, old farm building, we kind of did it up a wee bit and it became um, a venue. And we just started mm-hmm. really, really small and I put a little post on Facebook Saying, I'm going to run a little kids group um, we'll do a craft, you'll get to meet some animals, feed some animals and play in our enclosed play paddock and I was hoping to get 10 children a week and that would have paid, if I did that for a couple of years or I did it for a year, that would have paid for the work that we did to the building and okay. it would have given us like an outdoor playroom for our kids because at the time our mm-hmm. house was really small and that, that was the sole purpose of it kind of when it started and my little yeah. post on Facebook ended up with a waiting list of 100 people for the first week. Oh, my goodness. And it, just, <laughs> okay. it totally took us by surprise. And it just grew from there and grew and grew. And then at its peak, we'd have been putting 45 kids through a week um, for our fun farm. So that's preschool children with their parents coming to the farm, doing a craft, learning about what we'd been doing that week on the farm, seeing some animals and seeing some machines in a safe and enclosed environment yeah um, and it has it's just grown from there and that's what our business plan model was um, as part of the tender so when we moved down to buyer's farm um, we kind of rebranded and it became buyer's farm and okay. um, we've converted a cart shed here so that's now our meeting space it's just a bigger more inviting space um, yeah. and we've got an undercover tin shed like an old tractor shed that's attached to that cart shed so that gives us an outdoor undercover play area. So when weather's bad, we've still got wet weather provision that kids can get outside and bomb around and pedal tractors, but they're not going to yeah, get brilliant. so through. Um, yeah. Again, we've got a big grass and closed play area there. And then that leads out into an area of paddocks that are separate to the farm, but on the farm. So that's kind of our okay. ethos is we can invite the public onto the farm. They're in a safe and enclosed environment, but they are on the farm. You get that feel that you're on a real working farm, you know, the tractors are going about, you can you can see them, you can smell it, you can, you know, it's a real authentic farm. But yeah, but it's safe. But you're safe. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and it's kind of just grown from there. So we do weekly fun farm groups for preschool children. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a craft. We do weekly story barn groups, um, which is for the younger children. We read them farm-themed stories. Um, and we do our event days. Yeah. Um, which is kind of bigger events, up to about 200 people through in a day um, for Easter egg hunts or dinosaur hunts through fields. And we've got brilliant killer walk. There was the one time we had a nursery trip round and uh, Douglas Bray arrived to pick up um, some some dead stuff kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, the little faces pressed up against the window. What's happening to that guy? Oh, what's that man doing? You know? <laughs> Luckily it was just out of sight around the corner, yeah. but yeah. You could right, so they didn't, was they didn't see it getting was, winched in. <laughs> but I think it was that was a that was a local um, rural nursery who was down. So the parents who there were farmers themselves, so they just had a oh, okay. they just had a good giggle to themselves and like yeah <laughs> yeah that's I, I couldn't I couldn't have planned this if I tried kind of thing. Like, 
<laughs> but it's all part of it, isn't it? And there's a side of farming that, yeah, people people don't realise that obviously things die, There's and no it is point. sad, yeah. and yeah, you know, it, but but that you've got to move on. It's part I, of the business, isn't I think it? You've got to give them that. No, oh, you don't have to give them that experience, but you know, if someone sees it, you just explain this. You just explain it and say, well, unfortunately, yeah. like, where's livestock? There's dead stock. So. I feel like last yeah. year we had a pet calf, Ginger, and Ginger the pet calf was like our little celebrity because he was so petted, he would come up to the gate, and everybody loves Ginger the calf. And they're like, well, we keep Ginger forever. And I'm like, no. So Just as well, beef goes to the eighty a kilo. Then Ginger has to go. All, you know, all of a sudden, they get it. You know. And to yeah. be honest, they're not bothered. As long as there's another pet calf for next year, they don't care that Ginger's gone. Oh, God, you know, <laughs> but, you know, it is, it's the, I don't sugarcoat it. Um, people yeah. are there to learn about, you know, that's where do the cows go? Well, they go to Modison supermarket to be burgers and mint and steak. Yeah, not we say when people come here, I mean it's a big world, you know. So there's plenty of room for meat eaters, vegetarians, vegans. Ah, uh, God, I can't yep. think of anyone else. But you know, there's <laughs> there's plenty of room for everyone, and it's not a problem. Whatever you want to be, it's like, yeah, well, that's fine, you know, because yeah. even your vegans need farmers because they're going to need vegetables, you know, and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. everyone needs a everyone generally needs a farmer somewhere along the line, so. It's yeah, just that. And with being yeah. tenant farmers, you're paying a rent for what you have, regardless if you use it or not. So by going down this road, we've just kind of managed to more intensify intensify the business. You know, we've put another yeah. ent- another enterprise in there without paying any more for it. Yeah, that makes sense. You know. Yeah, and a lot of these farm buildings, like these old buyers, you can't get any machinery in them, so they just end up storing, you know, old fertilizer sacks or oh, the odd creep feeder or something. Well, so it's it. it's brilliant that you can use that for something that turns yeah. over a, a good income. It would have been a total dumping ground. Yeah, it would have just been just... a where do we throw <laughs> yeah. that or throw it in there? I mean, before we moved this farm, there used to be pigs uh, kept in that kind of thing, but there was a lot okay. of work done to the building. We we picked out all the old walls and had them properly repointed with your limestone mortar, and so it looks mm-hmm. it looks really good. But like you say, the good thing is we've we've now have a use for a building that was technically redundant, and because we have a use, we have sorted out the building, so it'll keep it. It will now stay standing for another hundred years, probably. You know, so we've kind yeah. of we saved a bit of the history. History, yeah, that's that thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And obviously, we're recording this in, in June. Um, we can't really carry on without mentioning coronavirus. Um, oh, yes. so obviously, that hasn't had a massive impact on farms at present. Um, well, on, on our sort of farming anyway, perhaps no. the fruit and veg industry is different. But um, for, for cereal and livestock farmers at the moment, things, you know, you're able to work as normal. But Helen, this has obviously really impacted on what you're doing. How is it you know how has it impacted and how has it made you reevaluate what you're doing has it given you more time to plan for things yeah um well we're we're closed <laughs> um full yeah stop. so um we took the decision to close the week before we had to close um okay just the nature of it groups of young children putting lots of stuff in their mouths you know um <laughs> you know you know what young kids are like big groups yeah. of young children um and it was just that decision people the numbers were dropping the kind of the previous week. Um, it's a multifunctional space, so we do some other workshops and things um, in the building as well. So we have yoga classes um, for okay. adults, um, and you know some workshops and seminars and stuff. So some of those bookings started dropping off. Um, people were feeling less comfortable coming out. 
um, yeah. into public places. So we took the decision to close, which was quite nice. On a personal level, it was a huge relief just having that decision, right, we're closed. Yeah. Um, and it meant you didn't have that panicky closing everything quickly at the last moment. Yeah. Quite nice. yeah. And the customers appreciated that. Um, a, a plan for reopening, where, well, we're just waiting for government guidelines. I don't think you can second yeah. guess at the moment. I think there's a lot of people no. trying to second guess and we're just, we'll just wait for the official line to come through and then we can reopen it at some point. Has it given you time to sort of plan the business side of things? Is there anything that you think you might change when things open up again? Yeah, so um, when we reopen, it probably won't be looking exactly the same as it did before. Um, we've done a lot of tidying up, a lot of kind of, you know, kind of tweaking things in the on the actual physical layout of it, which has been nice to have yeah. time to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of like freshen up the edges. And then when we reopen, we'll probably be more event-based, more open space. We need to give people more space and more freedom within a wider area, um, yeah. I think, is what's going to have to happen when we reopen. Yeah, yeah it certainly yeah. gives us a lot more time to plan. And like Helen said, just so when we do reopen, things will be not necessarily bigger, but things hopefully be better, just a better customer experience. Yeah. Um, things will be more slick and professional because we, because no one's here. It's given us an opportunity to get things done that you can't really do when there's people. Yeah, when you're here. open all the time. And, yeah. And like Helen was saying, things well, things will be different when we open again, and we're already thinking about establishing, uh, setting up more walks round about the farm. Uh, what we do have okay. in this farm is we have grass margins, six metre grass margins round about, round about the waterways, which mm-hmm. the previous tenant had um, established. Um, I can never really see the point of these before until we had this children's <laughs> activities. And now we just use them for, now they're not grass margins, they're our nature, so, nature walks kind of thing. Walk. So, yeah. Circular yeah. walks. So yeah, so it's great. So they take the EFA box and they also provide entertainment for the children. Um, so we're just looking to, you know, put in more margins, grass margins round about the farm, just to create more open space so people can now wander, you know, further into the farm um, without bumping into what's other people. And um, a walk in the countryside anywhere. So we yeah. try to keep it educational and different and something to keep people always interested. So all, yeah. all our event days, all it's the same circular route that we've been using at all our event days for the last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but every event has been totally different. So we had an Easter egg hunt and we had giant plyboard eggs the whole way around that you had to go and find. Um, we had a bug hunt day and we set pitfall traps and white sheets that you shoot to find the bugs off the trees. And So it was a, an actual bug hunt the whole way around. We had a dinosaur day where we cut out giant plyboard dinosaurs and put them in the barley field. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> how, how important do you think social media is to your, your business then? Uh, hugely. Um, yeah, yeah, as I said at the beginning, when we started, all I did was put a post on social media, and within a week, I had a waiting list of a hundred people. So, yeah, it is hugely time-consuming, but hugely valuable. I think if you can ma- yeah. if you can master it, it's it, it's just fantastic. I mean, you can reach a, a lot of people in just literally a few clicks of a button, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Of, and people know, that wouldn't come across the farm naturally yeah. they might they might find that you know you mentioned in a local community post and they think oh that's the local farm i'll have a look and they yeah. maybe wouldn't have got, gone otherwise because with social media you can't you get instant feedback if people are you know sharing or liking and i don't yeah. think 
every share of light necessarily translates into a customer, but you know, law of averages, the more people that are yeah, involved, the more coverage you get. The yeah, better. more coverage the better. When we started, we we solely used social media, and people paid when they arrived. And um, when mm-hmm. we moved down to buyers and we rebranded and um, reopened, we got a website built, which was a huge step for us. All our bookings are now online, and uh, that that's been a huge difference to the admin side for me because you know yeah dealing with social media all the time and you know having to check did someone book did someone not book who was it scrolling back I mean that wasted hours of my day so now it's all yeah, an online yeah. booking platform yeah um, so all payments are made in advance yeah on, through the website um, through the website oh, okay yeah just provide for people come you're not dealing with the money but when yeah. we do what I, we call campaign days a campaign day is like our you know, Santa experience or our Easter egg day or mm-hmm. our nature walk, you know, we use social media for that. And basically we'll publicize it through Facebook and push it through there, um, get as many people talking about it. And then that all kind of links back to the, the ticket sales. But when we do these these days, we, we limit ourselves to 200 tickets. Um, so we sell 200 tickets and touch with today, I think pretty much we've always... They've all been sold out. Yeah, they've always sold um, out. Yeah, I think that... We could have more. It's a huge area to have 200 people in. So that's 100 people in the morning and 100 people in the afternoon. And you've got a nature okay. walk that goes round the farm. Yeah. You've got the animal paddocks. You've got our cart shed meeting space. You've got your play paddock and the undercover area. Yeah. So it's a yeah. huge area to have 100 people. But it gives them a quality experience, which I think is really important. Yeah, so, um, yeah you don't want them feeling crowded. And after all yeah. this coronavirus thing hopefully has died down a bit, I think we will still have some form of social distancing for a while. So yeah. if people have been used to coming to your events and they know that they're they're going to get a bit of space to explore and take I their time. No, you're right. So our first event, if I'm correct, was our Easter egg walk last year. Yeah. That was our very first event. So this was like nosebleed territory to everyone. No, none of the family <laughs> had been involved in this kind of thing before. So, yeah. you know, so I, as the story goes, I think it was something along the lines of, well, how many tickets are we going? The website guy was like, we need a number of tickets. He was like, Okay, pick a number we're never going to reach. We're like, okay, well, 200. If we get 200, people will be, oh, my God. So yeah. we went for that, and then we started selling the tickets. They were going slow. Then they were really selling quite quickly. And it got to the point where Dad was like, oh, how many tickets were sold? We're like, oh, 50, Dad. We're doing really good. We sold 50 tickets. And it's like, oh. and even my dad was like, all right, okay, Jings, well, that's a lot. Okay. And it got to, about <laughs> a, it got to something like 100. And remember, they had the conversation. Dad was like, how many tickets were sold now? A hundred. Like, oh, man, that's, oh God, that's amazing. How are we going to handle all this? Papa, I think you should take it down now. I think you should stop selling them. <laughs> I was Panic. like, right, aye, okay, that's probably a good idea. Then uh, I got to tea time and I said to Helen, I was like, ah, we'll be okay. We'll just, we'll, we'll chance it. And they got to the day and my dad was like, there's a lot of people. This, a hundred people seems like an awful lot of people, doesn't it? I'm like, <laughs> ah, well, to be honest with you, Dad, it's actually 200. He's like, <laughs> you didn't take it down, did you? I was like, no, we didn't. No. <laughs> but it was just kind of like, you know, someone once said, life begins once you reach the edge of your comfort zone. So I give you, you've got, yeah. you've got to push yourself. But those 200 yeah. tickets for our first event, I think were sold in about five days. Yeah, we hadn't, wow. we hadn't put the event up because we were still building the building and I wasn't 100% convinced that while we were lambing, calving and sewing and building this building for opening at Easter, 
I just wasn't 100% convinced the building was going to get top priority on the farmer list and it was going to get completed. Yeah. <laughs> Until we were completed, yeah. I didn't put the event live. And then when I did, it just, yeah, the power of social media, as we said earlier, it just kind of went viral. It was a glorious. And you maybe hit the market at the right time as well, people that hadn't booked other Easter egg things I and think, then you, you just yeah. appear and like, oh, great, that looks yeah, so interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, and what we do, everything that we've done is kind of, from what people ask for. So we're really customer based. So I've got regulars that come to Fun Farm every week um, and they block book a term at a time. And if they okay. come along and they say, oh, I really love dinosaurs, can you not do something with dinosaurs? Like we certainly can. And that's where Dinosaur <laughs> Day came from. So yeah. I think it is about listening to your, when you're working with the public, you have to listen to the public and bring them yeah. on board in the journey and make them feel involved. So while we were building the venue, you know, although the business was closed for six months while we rebuilt, we still kept our social media going and, you know, we'd show them little snapshots. Of, we never gave the game away as to what we were building, but, you know, they might have seen the corner of an arched window and um, they might yeah. have seen the glazier van parked outside the gable end of the shed. And so people really enjoyed kind of watching the progress of us rebuild, posting videos of me sweating it out, laying turf, you know, thinking, are we going to be open in time? But people love that, and people yeah. really enjoyed coming coming on the journey with us. As well as the sort of kids aspect of things, you've been dabbling in other agritourism and looking at whiskey tours. Um, I believe was that to start this summer. Uh, yeah, so we had a couple yeah. of international tours um, booked through tour companies this summer, which is slightly annoying because they're yeah. no longer coming from UK. Um, but. Um, We've got the contacts with those tour companies now and hopefully they'll come back. So, um, yeah, it was coach loads coming from Turkey and Turkey, France. Turkey, Turkey and France, yeah. Um, that we had coming um, to do farm tours and a bit of hospitality. So we got our environmental health um, audits done this year. So I got the kitchen mm-hmm. farmhouse approved. So we can now do farmhouse home baking. We can do soup and sandwiches. Um, yeah. I just offer that real authentic kind of Scottish farmhouse welcome. Yeah. Um, so these I'm, people have been coming over to do whiskey tours, I take it, and then you were offering them an insight yeah, to the farming side. side. Basically, as from the whiskey point of view, everyone's always thinking that the whiskey story starts at the distillery and goes from there. Yeah. There's this whole yeah. blood, sweat, and tears industry before it gets to the, <laughs> the flashy distillery. distillery kind of thing. Yeah. So that's kind yeah. of what we're, try, we're going to portray or try to portray anyway is you know, the real life experience of just getting the barley growing, getting the right quality and then getting it to the to the distillery. So it's if you come at harvest you could have a really exciting day doing a farm tour. Yeah. If you yeah. come in like February well, it's like when it's a ploughed field, yeah. it, it's not yeah. quite interesting. It's like, if you use your imagination yeah. you can just kind of <laughs> But I, but I suppose if you've got your venue, you can have information boards and things for them. You know, they can, they, they can. It's not just standing in a cold, wet field in February and they've come somewhere hot like it, Turkey. Yeah, <laughs> They're no, thinking, what are we here for? Yeah, it, it's a big learning curve for us. It's just getting the whole visitor experience and just like you say, just creating a venue at the start where you've got your information boards and maybe a little film show and you know just to yeah. give it a more professional feel kind of thing. But you know, there's a bit, there's something to work on, but. It's it's about offering the quality experience and you know meeting actually meeting the real far the real life farmer and um, seeing the machinery and actually getting the authentic experience as opposed to 
a polished um, visitor kind of shop. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. and that's it. And there's so much money in the whiskey industry, and I don't think anyone is telling the the farmer side of the story. So no, hopefully, no, hopefully, when things pick up, you guys will be the people to do that. Yeah, fingers crossed. I think our bread and butter is going to be in the children's and family entertainment. You know, uh, going down yeah. that, going down that. We're thinking the whiskey side of things will be a. If if they want to come, yes, that's not a problem. It, it, it's a difficult industry. It's you know the tour, the whole tour thing is is quite difficult because you're. The next tour is like the distilleries, um, and they're very yeah. slick and polished, and you know, kind of thing, and almost like a the distillery tours are almost like a loss leader for the distilleries just to get people in the doors. We are farmers at the forefront, and we do this on the side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you go to a hotel or some other kind of tourism place, then that is what they do, and yeah. that's their that's their main job. So I think people enjoy the kind of the real aspect of being on a farm. But it does mean you can't offer, you're offering a different type of service and a different type of experience. So what what do you think are the biggest challenges to, to face farmers um, in Scotland at the moment? I'm going to say uh, mindset. I think okay. so many farmers are stuck in this really traditional mindset. Mm-hmm. And I think we're kind of, you've got to think outside the box. And as we were saying earlier, you know, you've got to think about like, utilising all your assets that you have on the farm, yeah. Um, whether it being within your family members, within your you know physical farming assets, and just kind of sometimes step out of the box and look back in. You know, think outside the box as to what you've got, um, and what you can do with what you've got. Like more isn't always what you need. Sometimes you've just got to do different things with what you've got. Mm-hmm. So yeah, probably mindset. Yeah, I think some of the biggest challenges. For, for farmers is it's isolation of the job I think mm-hmm. it's going to be the it's very top cost at, at the moment you know and it's good to see it coming out it's just the the mental health of the agricultural industry um, yeah and there's the, the the pressure that farmers are under just to basically uh, a a to make a living and then you know b to make a profit um and just the pressures that that can place on individuals or uh, or on families or just on businesses in general i think one of the biggest problems going forward is just farmers just opening up to either each other or just are just being able to have a, an honest frank conversation with their neighbor without feeling that someone's gleaning information from them or just kind of mm-hmm. you know scoring points you know the thing i hate about farming is like you know you have the conversations like, oh, they generally start, how did your barley yield this year? And you're like, right, okay, here we go. This is the, this is the poker barley game. <laughs> right, uh, I'm going to go in at, oh, James, I don't know, 2.3 tonnes an acre? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to half this year. I'm like, well, bugger, I should have went, I was going to go in at two and a half, I didn't just say two and a half. Because they would have said 2.7. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I'm like, everyone just has to just shoot from the hip and just be frank and if, don't feel bad if you're having a bad lamin or a bad calving or a, you know, you can't get your malt and barley cut below 20% because it won't stop raining, you know, just just be able just to talk about it and just, you know, and your guy you're telling just to actually say, Aye, that's tough. And if he's had a really good go, just uh, well, I'm not going to mention that because it's the appropriate. You know what I mean? Just I think it's yeah. just being honest and frank, and just let's get rid of all this 
pub talk and rubbish. It basically is just rubbish, and it it doesn't do it. It doesn't do anyone any good whatsoever, kind of thing. Is that something that you actively work on, then, Bill? Your sort of mindset and positive outlook, and trying to keep good yeah, relationships I, with people I, to I, talk to. It is. I mean, I could be a pretty marky, short, a short kind of person, kind of thing. Uh, which can make other I like how Helen's saying totally silent. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no, she's moving furiously here. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, um, you know, which admittedly can make everyone else's life a bit of a misery around about the farm kind of thing. But I think, I think it does come down to mindset. And to be honest with you, I, I used to, I stopped buying the Farmers Weekly years ago. I don't buy the Scottish Farmer. I generally don't read any farming magazines. One of the reasons for that is I read a book one time and someone actually said, well, why do you buy magazines to tell you what you already know? You know, if you want to grow and expand in life, learn about something different. So, I know. And let's face it, if you go and, good news doesn't sell newspapers. So that's why I stopped buying the, fa- the, the farming press. So don't buy any of that stuff. Um, what we do do, or I did do now, I kind of realized I spend 14 plus hours a day some days in a tractor on my own. Mm-hmm. Talking With to far the, too much time to think. Well, I was going to say talking to the dog, and you know, you know, when the dog starts getting bored and wanting out for a walk when you're plowing, um, you know. So what we did do there is stop listening to the radio, and I downloaded the Amazon audio audio app onto my phone, and yep. now I spend fourteen hours a day just listening to books of whatever you want, and that's really helped me, and I've learned a lot that way. Just so I don't listen. To, so basically, I don't listen to the radio in the tractors anymore. I don't listen to the news. I think I think it's important. Like if you're finding something's bringing you down, I don't watch the news because uh, yeah. I find it depressing. You're right. There's never a good news story. Um, so if there's something that you can do to put yourself in a positive frame of mind, you're learning something, you're growing as a person, you're finding something useful. Even if it is just listening to a novel, you're yeah. you're taking your mind away from maybe a monotonous task like plowing or sewing. You know, something that you're doing for such a long yeah. time. Oh no, it's fantastic because yeah. someone did say to me, "Ask what is is that." Tractor driving, not so. That must be such the most boring job. I'm like, seriously, it's the best job you could ever get. I listened to a, a good book the other day there by a guy called Gabe Brown, who's an American rancher, whose okay. kind of book was called um, Dirt to Soil, and that was about regenerative farming. Um, and what we also do as well is listen to a lot of YouTube, um, okay. uh, mindset stuff on YouTube. I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. a bit cringy, but it kind of, you know, yeah, again, it's just, business podcasts on YouTube and just just generally business people talking about what they've done and how they got to where they are. And I think that's kind of what helps to install a bit of nothing ventured, nothing gained kind of, you know. Uh, So what I would say to people is like, you know, when you spend X thousands on some fancy X on a tractor, which you maybe don't really need, but you, you grudge paying an extra 20 quid a month on your mobile phone to get the unlimited data, I'm like, no, get the unlimited yeah. data on your phone so you can listen to YouTube stuff um, and books and all, and you know, in a tractor yeah. with no, you know, non-stop without any limits, and it's just, uh, it's good fun. I mean, it takes, it just takes you away to a different world. You he know, is what I mean? very positive and a bit of a motivational speaker. But when you're having a bad <laughs> day and the kids didn't want to do their homeschooling, and he comes home and he's like, well. It's all to do with your mindset. <laughs> yeah, I could throw the frying pan up. Someday. Yeah, but there's <laughs> yeah. nothing wrong with my mindset. It's the kids. Yeah. Uh, no, but that would be one of my biggest 
I takeaways for someone is just be like, you know, just try it. Just try something different like that. Yeah, wish I'd kind of stumbled across it sooner kind of thing. There is so much to be said for mindset and manifestation and, you know, if you really want something. So what is it that drives you both personally? Just leaving things a little bit better than you found them. Just kind of, just being able to live up to the role model and like, you know, the guys of came the guys before me like my dad and you know my parents and you know and such things like you can just just move things forward and you know for the right reasons what drives me is probably success um, mm-hmm. and success is not necessarily measured by money um but you know seeing starting something from scratch and seeing it build up seeing everyone's faces smile when they're at our events and our kind of event days just seeing all those kids smile and seeing all those future farmers, kids that come from the middle of the town that have never had any access to a farm that now want to be a farmer and put a pedal tractor on their Santa list. And <laughs> they, they own farm boiler suits and they own wellies and they can't wait to come and see the cows and collect the eggs. And you know, It just makes you feel so happy just knowing yeah. that you're, you're making them happy and seeing our kids involved with that kind of entrepreneurship and business. And, you know, I love the fact that our four-year-old daughter for her Christmas this year wanted to get a money tin so that she could have her own business. Yeah. A pink oh. money tin. You know, cause Mar- <laughs> Marshall's um, seven and he has a money tin because he's got a few hens and he sells his eggs to his granny and granda. And that's his little business. He's got an egg business. And Louisa uh-huh. is desperate to have a business too. And that. I love that entrepreneurship that we're kind of giving our kids and they can do anything. So having the family business is really important to me and everyone being involved and pulling in the same direction. Thank you to Helen and Bill for taking the time to talk to us today and providing such an interesting insight into your farming business. You can find out more about the Farm Advisory Service and the work we are doing on our website, www.fas.scot. Or if you need advice, call the helpline on 0300 323 0161.